0: Welcome to Kansas Rural Center Presents, the Kansas Rural Center's podcast on farming, agricultural policy, civic engagement, and much more happening in the Sunflower State. I'm your host, Ryan Gertzen-Regeer, the program and admin manager here at KRC, and in this series of our podcasts, we're presenting reflections from Kansas farmers about the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill and how it could assist farmers with improving soil health and conservation practices on their farms. Co-hosting this episode with me is Zach Pastora, environmental champion and the president of KRC's Board of Directors. And joining us to talk about the 2023 Farm Bill is Demetria Hill from Decatur County. Thanks for joining us, Demetria. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to farming?
1: Sure. Uh, So I would be a fifth generation farmer in Northwest Kansas uh, my family has been in this area in, around Oakley and North uh, since the 1800s on both sides of my family, my grandmas and grandpas, uh, so we raise primarily wheat and cattle, but we have a very diverse operation here with uh, my dad uh, being the main farmer, owner-operator, and I work with my uncles and aunt on the farm currently um and i do most of the labor at this point in marketing um and we are certified organic and certified biodynamic and i'm on the decatur county conservation board this year so that's kind of new for me
0: yeah thank you um i would be curious a little bit to to know you know what you really appreciate or enjoy about farming, or or why do you why do you do it? Not everybody everybody comes back to the, the farm and work with their family. So, what what do you uh, what do you, what do you find attractive there, or kind of brought you back?
1: Um, yeah. So my my uh, grandpa, I guess this this is kind of tying in with the organic and just my family's story. Uh, my grandpa Andrew purchased the current property that I'm living at now and he had a real, I guess, love of the soil and love of the farm and encouraged us to certify organic after the 80s. So he, he survived the 80s but um, gave up cattle or gave up uh, dairy at that point and he was a uh, aging, and we got into um, organic practices under him. My dad actually achieved certification after he passed away, and I was just a child during this time, so this is all I've known, is uh, the organic practices under organic standards, and it's really tied in with soil health as the foundation for those practices, Um, and what I really like about, uh, so being connected to the soil and, um, being able to take care of it and understand, um, what I'm doing, I guess, is just having that responsibility, just being able to look at something and see, okay, that's not working. How do I fix it? What can I do to make it better? Observing things, writing things down and actually having an impact, seeing the the fruits of labor or seeing okay that was out of my control that's a a bad weather event or that's something that's um some other forces affecting it and i can't do anything about it but i can learn from it so it's it's very hands-on i appreciate that being connected to animals that are a lot simpler than people in some cases (laughs) i i uh i have that uh appreciation.
2: That's really neat I, I can relate to a lot of that Demetria kind of the um, hearing about your family roots but also the importance of uh, healthy roots in the ground uh, those from uh, the crops etc and uh, I think a lot of folks in Kansas can identify with some of that. Um, it's a pretty special thing to see uh, nature and to participate in that uh, in a way that can you know uh, help ourselves in society as well as uh, give back to, uh, to that that provides for us. So appreciate all that. You know, it's interesting to hear about some of the uh, development of the organic practices and, and how it came about uh, kind of through the 80s, which was a hard time for a lot of farmers uh, with the um, kind of farm economics being uh, uh, flipped on its head and, and a lot harder to make ends meet. And so I was curious to hear um, how, you know, uh, the choice was made to kind of transition away from the dairy operation, as it sounds, uh, and really dive into uh, maybe the organic conservation practices. Was that, uh, is that kind of a testament to the, hey, we need to try to focus on, reducing inputs was it kind of a calculus an economic calculus or was it more of a um hey this is what we know to be our the best form of farming for us in the sense of organic practices that lines up with our values etc so i don't know if that's a convoluted question or not but i'm curious what you think
1: okay um yeah it's a a little bit uh, hard for me to focus but I think if I go back to what really inspired my grandpa to stop using pesticides that's really what uh really started our us on this journey or this path and so it must have been when my dad was a child that um they were spraying a milo field he he hired someone to spray a milo field with something I, th- I believe it was a fungicide and it was very pervasive it was in the air it um made him say to the kids you know go inside and they did for several days um and so he didn't use a lot of synthetic materials after that um he used some synthetic fertilizers it like urea um and so in the 80s by the time um, his kids were grown he was just farming by himself Uh, he did about 30 cows in a dairy and that was he was getting some health problems at the time and the markets for dairy milk he did uh, it went to a cheese factory the marketing became very difficult He he used to be able to take milk to a rail station and just dump it off.
0: Mm.
1: And that thing, that avenue went away. He was really involved with the National Farmers Organization and they tried to work on collecting a lot of farmers' goods and uh, getting a good price for the the products in a, a, a pooled group. But that, um, he was really disheartened about uh, how that marketing avenue just never really materialized it never really worked for the farmer by the time he was not able to really do the work so to pass on the the practices the farm to his kids um he he actually he and my grandma actually encouraged the kids to move away Mm. so it was just a very hard time in the 80s there was a lot more going on than I can uh, described just from the stories that I've heard. Um, so my dad came back to the farm in the 80s himself because of my grandpa's health problems. And he started raising certain types of crops that were kind of experiments, kind of what we always knew. Um, and my grandpa was moving that the direction of organic certification, but he passed away before we actually... Uh, achieved it just because that whole system was developing. Uh, So my grandma encouraged my dad to continue on that path and raising maybe a type of wheat that she remembered her grandpa or her dad growing, uh, which is turkey red. So that's Mm -hmm. got a long, important history in Kansas too. Um, So... By 1994, the atmosphere for farming was very hybrid wheats, very uh, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, and not very much market for grains, organic. There was a mill in, in the middle of Kansas, Heartland Mill, that was starting up to be able to market the organic grains. So at that time, it wasn't really much of a marketing decision to go organic um, but there was a lot of excitement about it and ch- kind of continuing the, the mission of NFO actually to get a price for your production um, pooling, farmers uh, goods that, that kind of stuff was happening in the organic, um, organic realm as organic certification was developing that was all happening at the same time the commercial or conventional non-organic whatever you want to call it was continuing to move in another direction so more consolidation Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: organic was down on a different level with a mom and pop scale of stuff kind of restarting a marketing system so conservation practices um and marketing have always been a part of organic, I'd say.
2: Well, and being organic, and and remind me how many acres you're doing?
1: Uh, So we have 440 acres of pasture and the same amount of cropland. Mm-hmm. Got it. So we have livestock too.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, so I'd I'm be curious to some of that and how you uh, either integrate the livestock or how that plays a, a role on your farm. But uh, it's really amazing. Just before uh, we hopped on uh, to the recording, we were talking about how uh, you know how limited the number of organic operations and there are in Kansas. And remind me of the number that we came up with there.
1: Um. So. 206 certified organic operations and that includes handling operations wow
2: and can't yeah and 206 or so uh, and uh maybe some not, not certified organic but of 50,000 some farms uh in Kansas <laughs> so you're <Yeah>. you <laughs> are a, a special one uh and uh and I'm curious um well, you know, how that feels when you hear some of that, is that, uh, is that, uh, is that surprise you? Uh, uh, you know, is that, is that make you more proud because you've been, uh, you're a select few. Um, and then, uh, then also I'm curious your advice on, um, you know, is it, is it uh, worth it to do all organic? I understand you're organic certifier as well. So just curious to, to elaborate on some of those.
1: Yeah, so I, I would say it's it's definitely worth it to um, be on this path of taking care of the soil. Uh, the, the certification part of it, that's uh, something that there's maybe not a lot of technical uh, advice or uh, help to achieve the certification. Um, it It doesn't make me feel... Uh, bad that it's such a small number. It it doesn't make me feel like oh I'm part of this this exclusive club. Um I just do what I feel is is important for my particular land and my particular situation. And if people see me as a good example, that's that's great. But they're gonna have to figure it out for their own operation too. Was there a second part to that question? no,
2: I think that's good. I think we can go into uh, you know uh, to, to seemingly the, the what you're doing on your operations and caring about soil health and and using we know practices that improves the soil ecosystems, helps with uh, carbon sequestration uh, and practically uh, helps you make your farm more resilient, we think are really positive things. and so I'd be curious why aren't there more operations and maybe you've seen it in uh in recent times coming to be more organic or biodynamic etc
1: uh so i think that i've seen a lot of operations get into certification organic certification or otherwise and then hop out and they uh they a lot of those people are looking at it for the market value they see, an increased market value, that is still there. But then when the conventional prices uh, for wheat is like $11 and organic price is $12, uh, they probably jump out of certification just doing the extra paperwork. Um, those carbon credit programs are pretty interesting. Uh, I've been gathering information going to some talks that companies are putting on um, I think that that is a, I think we are kind of due for a new conservation overhaul in uh, national policy. We The last big one was a hundred years ago, roughly. So I don't know if, if the carbon credit programs is really it. I think there's they're really uh, building the ship on the sea on that one and maybe the the payout or the the mechanism for um, getting paid isn't really making a lot of sense for some farmers. But that's that's something that I'm watching closely is can I get paid for things that I know are good for the soil that I'm already doing or do I have to not be doing them to be able to be paid. That's been part of some programs in the past conservation programs you only get paid if you haven't been doing certain practices which is too bad i think that's something that could be improved
2: yeah exactly yeah. especially because uh you and your family have been doing that for for so long i mean you shouldn't uh penalize someone for for doing it right <laughs> for a long time versus <laughs> just newly adopting it so anyway
1: yeah so, some of the practices that we've been doing that uh, maybe weren't socially acceptable or scientifically recognized in the past was integrating livestock into our cropland. Um, I think there's been a lot of research and studies that farmers have had ingrained in them that uh, livestock create com- compaction on your land, and you don't want to have them on your your cropland because they're going to be spreading weeds. And trying to deal with those weeds later is going to be a problem. You know, you you let one weed go to seed and you have a problem for seven years or something like that. Um, So we've fenced in. We're in the process of fencing in all of our cropland. Just 440 acres. But um, that way we'll be able to increase our stocking rate for our livestock uh, side of things. And we will be able to cut down on... uh, Amount of diesel that we'll need to use for tillage, for mowing, uh, for hauling bales, and it's a way that we're moving closer to no-till organic because this year we've grazed our uh, wheat stubble from last year, and that was into July. We took the cows off this field and then we worked it once or twice, and then we were able to plant it. So, two tillage operations. Uh, the cows were fed we didn't have to spray the volunteer wheat the the cattle ate it and I wish more people would do that in this area because there's not much grass this year because of the drought so what little wheat that we did cut they they sprayed the the fallow and I'm not trying to really talk bad about my neighbors because they're doing what's what they believe is right for their operations but this is what's I'm looking at and uh, s- taking notes. What's going to happen to that field next year? What's going to be the yield, the um, the organic matter in the soil? I'd like to do more testing on that, and uh, those kind of practices I think should be rewarded some way.
0: Yeah, it, you're certainly facing a lot of concerns with water issues out there going into the future, and that makes a lot of sense to to be working at things that way. I think. You know, the the no-till organic ideal is is what my wife and I are hopefully going for, you know, someday in the future. So that's inspiring the way that you're working at that. Um, when you talk about grazing, do you have, uh, you talked about cattle earlier. Are there other species that you're grazing on your land as well, or is it mainly the cattle?
1: Um, yeah, we do have about 20 head of bison and a few horses. And we have chickens and, and ducks in a yard, and we do use their manure for or litter for fertilizing if they accumulate enough. Yeah,
0: I had just been reading about a new study that was just published by some, some folks at K-State about how bison are so beneficial to prairie diversity and, and land diversity here in Kansas. And I was just kind of casually curious if you see any difference in... in what happens when you graze with the bison versus the cattle on on your property
1: yeah uh so one major difference we see in our pastures versus others is we don't have any yucca the bison uh eat that during the winter it's a a pokey plant that is usually a sign of overgrazing with cattle uh, but the bison eat it they find different things easier to eat than cattle um, some people some studies have shown maybe they eat more grasses and cows eat more forbs and have actually a more diverse diet but i think there should be more research done on that for the bison we we have bison and cattle on the same land and in our cropland they will go to the grassy stuff first and they'll eat probably the the same things as as the cattle, from what I've seen. So out here we have, as far as weeds, um, kochia, foxtail millet, pigweeds, thistles, different types of thistles, cockleburs, sunflowers. So none of them are going to eat the sunflowers really, um, <laughs> but the all of those other things. I think it's about the same amount that the cows and the bison eat. It just depends what stage that those things are in, um, and the stubble or stalks, I think the cattle and the bison eat about the same types of things. So I'm not seeing much difference just on our own farm.
0: No oh, thanks that's that's interesting. Are there some soil health practices that that you would like to be using on the farm that you don't for you know a variety of reasons, either time or or you know money taken to to implement more things or I mean, lack of technical assistance. Um, you talked about that as a kind of a barrier to switching to organic for people. But um, in terms of you know thinking about what you do on the farm, what you'd like to do in the future, are there things that maybe a possible farm bill improvement for different funding or uh, more technical assistance, things like that? You know, um, are there things that that you wish you could do that you can't yet?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest barrier that I have is the equipment. So, access to certain types of equipment, uh, certain equipment that I can imagine hasn't been invented yet. Um, The cost of equipment, like a swather is how much, (laughs) like the cost of a house. Um, Yeah, so having some kind of cost share or Access to equipment at an NRCS office that I could rent, that would be very helpful.
0: Yeah, definitely. We've heard that from other people too.
1: Um, and as a beginning farmer, too, that's a major barrier. Not having to buy it outright or um, take out a loan to get equipment. And also being able to work on the equipment myself, having it be simple enough or no <laughs> uh, fewer license restrictions.
2: That's really interesting. I think a lot, um, especially intriguing, uh, the equipment that hasn't been invented yet that you have ideas <laughs> for is uh, pretty interesting. That might be a whole nother <laughs> podcast. That's cool.
1: Yeah. I think the, the challenges with no-till organic are equipment based. Just we haven't quite gotten there with the right tools.
0: Uh, there's a, a program out there called farm hack where people will maybe come together to try and communally solve an issue and maybe design new equipment or something like that so maybe we should be hosting a farm hack uh get <laughs> together sometime to work on on building some some stuff for exactly that purpose i think that'd be well worth time and energy
1: i think that would be pretty popular yeah.
0: so you know we we look at at some ways to get farmers to, to do different practices and, and government will use, you know, either either regulation or an incentive to kind of help push things along. Um, you know, for your farm or just kind of in your view, as you go around as an inspector, we hear from a lot of farmers, they don't want regulation, they just, you know, want an incentive and to have that choice, that voluntary choice to do things. Do you have any thoughts about about how best to help people move into some of these areas i guess you talked about that a little bit with organic transition but any other thoughts
1: yeah um so i think the the best easiest program for organic farmers has been the organic cost share program so i think it's important that that continues um another one that has been really helpful for people is the crp program that's how a lot of guys get started in organic they get hold of CRP land that's coming out, but a conflict with the organic rules and that program, and it could be county by county. um, To get the land into CRP, a lot of the programs require you to kill what's there existing with a synthetic fertilizer or synthetic uh, spray, synthetic spray, um, herbicide, and then plant treated seed like treated milo. So both of those things then contaminate the soil and you would have to go through a three-year transition. Um, So the CRP programs are going to be more than three years probably. But still, um, there are people who are currently organic who are putting their land into CRP and they're going to lose their certification on that land because they're being required by their local office to spray and put curate treated seed on the land i think that needs to that conflict needs to uh, be figured out on a, a broader scale if a farmer doesn't want those practices done they should still be able to figure out with their local agent how to get that land in the crp
2: yeah that yeah, makes that a seems lot like- of sense uh, ryan i don't know about you but it should be that um conservation reserve program promoting conservation and organic certification which promotes conservation practices right should be mutually complementary and not uh yeah hurting one another so
0: brian we've interviewed a number of of farmers or folks we've talked with um who kind of echo uh, i guess some of those sentiments that that the way that the system is set up or the regulations you need to follow already are not, are, are very inflexible. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't work broadly for the diverse group of, you know, food producers we have in the United States and um, kind of pigeonholing people into certain ways of doing things or, or putting up barriers that they have to to solve like that. I mean that having uh, to spray and and plant treated seeds that um, negates your, organic certification just feels like a lot of waste of time and energy and money. And um, yeah, that's unfortunate. Definitely getting some of the language or or the way that putting more flexibility into the farm bill programs and and some of these other programs um, seems like a great, a great way to move forward, I think.
1: And there's another thing on crop insurance Uh, for organic. Well, there's probably several things and I don't think I'd be able to explain all of them really well because we don't do uh, crop insurance Uh, but it seems like there's not consistency in training for crop insurance companies on how organic certification works. Kind of the timelines for things when you get your certificate is going to be kind of at the end of the year. You're not certifying something up front, so some insurance companies might be asking for an organic certificate showing the current crops that you're going to be certified for that are going to be covered, but you won't get that certificate until sometimes December, Um, so there's conflicts in the crop insurance. Another important one is um, they define certain things in uh, like a continuous cropping. So you can do corn on corn and uh, wheat on corn, and those are both called continuous cropping. Uh, in organic, continuous cropping means corn on corn, two crops of the same species, and that's not allowed. It's not really a conflict in rules because if you're organic, you know you can't do corn on corn. You're not being required to. But just how they define things and understand things in the insurance office, um, I would hope that the, the training and resources would be there for those agents so that they're not requiring uh, or miscommunicating with organic farmers.
0: We've also heard from from other farmers that, you know, when they do something kind of outside of, of growing corn and soybeans uh, and, and be wheat or sorghum in a conventional way, uh, that that working with their local farm service agency office or, or some of those officials... Um, becomes difficult because folks don't maybe know the intricacies of working with your organic system or or the regulations and stuff around that and not to i can cut this out if if uh, if it's uncomfortable to talk about your fsa agents locally but but have you experienced uh yeah are are they are you able to work with people adequately or, or do you feel like your your local fsa or usda folks need more training in in some of those areas
1: um, I think we're able to work with with them personally. Um, we haven't really done many organic programs with the FSA. Um, it's been just the standard program, so I don't really have a lot of experience on that. But I think, yeah, they, they it seems like that's the direction things are going, more stuff through the FSA, and there is, um, the certification through FSA is really up front, and that needs to be uh, made clear that with organic it's not up front it's on the other side you get certified after you get inspected so um, yeah there should be definitely plenty of opportunities for them to learn from experienced people in the organic industry not just um, training from uh, USDA even the USDA accredits private certifiers there is no branch of the USDA that does the certification there are a few state certifiers that certify but it's all private companies that are actually on the ground uh, analyzing this making sure people are complying with the standards
0: and that's that's one part of your your work still as well off the farm right you you're an independent
1: inspector yes. Yeah. So I'm a, a, that means I'm an independent contractor Mm -hmm. and I don't make the certification decision. That's, I'm a third party to a certifier and a farmer. That's really the relationship. And I just come in and look at what a farmer is doing and see if there's any difference compared to what they've written down.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. So
2: are you seeing more interest out there amongst producers to adopt organic practices? Did I, I I think we touched on that maybe a little bit, but is that the trend?
1: Yes, I would say so. Even if they aren't requesting certification is pursuing that, they are picking up on some of the practices like cover cropping. That was um, an organic thing, I don't know 20 years ago, big thing. And now uh, you have a lot of seed companies that are developing a business around it and uh, farmers figuring out how to make it work for them, Mm -hmm. even in dry conditions.
2: I'm glad to hear that. And uh, one thing that crossed my mind was that uh, I saw some uh, new data from uh, University of Illinois and Purdue University do these um, surveys. Uh, where they survey you know, a different variety of uh, stakeholders on, on you know whether it's farm bill practices or farm bill programs. Uh, but this particular one was about U.S. consumers and sustainable food production. It just showed that more U.S. consumers, 64%, support government incentivizing farmers to adopt sustainable practices. And then I contrasted that with incentivizing farmers for those sustainable practices versus requiring farmers uh, for sustainable practices. And interestingly, 64% showed that they would like the government to incentivize farmers for more sustainable practices. So sustainability for a majority of consumers surveyed, the thousands, so you know, people surveyed wanted sustainable practices, but almost half of those surveyed thought that the government should require sustainable practices. Uh, isn't that interesting? And think what you're saying about uh, uh, we're due for an overhaul of uh, conservation programs and practices. I think more consumers are realizing that the way that food is grown has a big impact on not only maybe their personal health as far as eating, but an impact on the planet, on ecosystems and not just those above ground and and the water supplies, et cetera, but ecosystems underground. And so I'm curious what you make of that, you know, because I don't know that a lot of farmers I talk to don't really want to be told what to do, but given options to do what makes sense for them is kind of you express.
1: Yeah, I, I would echo that, um, not requiring something because I believe farmers do know what's best for the land that they're on every day. So you can have a trial or studies in a a university, in a, a controlled setting research farm on what the best practices are. But when you apply that to some other location, this whole microclimate is going to be different and it's not going to be a one-to-one thing where you should be requiring a farm to do this other practice that you have figured out is sustainable through data, through scientific study. That's how a government program would probably work when you're requiring something for best practices. Um, I think, the incentives is good you want to say here's here's this research we've done to uh, show what might be the best practices and you need to apply them to your own situation and we'll analyze it with you think there needs to be more tools for farmers to analyze stuff on their farm. Like um, I've heard from some people just want to be able to do a, a sample organic matter test and that may have been available through a NRCS program or a NRCS office and is not anymore. It may be more of a regional office now um, and farmers maybe don't know how to do it themselves. Maybe there's not very many labs around, but uh, having that kind of access to tools or Uh, people that they can work with to troubleshoot issues in their own farms. So there are some farmers who are just going to be looking for, here's what makes me the most money, and I'm just renting this ground. I'm not going to need to increase the organic matter to continue the lease. So they are going to be cutting the corn in this area for hay so they're stripping it to the ground there's not going to be any uh, residue above the surface and I'm concerned this year that we're going to have dust storms in the winter and if the wheat doesn't come up
0: Hmm. dust
1: storms so um, we created the the blast conservation program because of a dust storm situation so (laughs) exactly
2: yeah and here we are and so, uh, yeah, that's something that's, we've kind of tried to unpack it through these uh, discussions is, are we making progress? Or are we making enough progress through our conservation practices? And, you know, I know we're seemingly allocating more federal dollars you know uh taxpayer money for these programs are they really paying off or what ways can we make the most out of those dollars in the future so that's interesting you're concerned about the dust storms here uh, (laughs) almost 100 years later uh from the dust bowl uh here in kansas
1: yeah
0: I just found a, a map I had seen from Farm Service Agency that they have their grassland CRP national priority zones areas of the country that they really want to target for putting stuff in CRP or or uh, otherwise. But there is a part of this that's the Dust Bowl priority zone that covers part of Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and New Mexico. And so there's, I think, 23 or 24 counties on the western side of Kansas here that are, I mean, the, the Farm Service Agency at least has concerns over. So, um, yeah, echo echo your concern there, um, Demetria.
1: Yeah, and this spring was the windiest, I think, on record in this area, like not just northwest Kansas, but like a whole big area. We had uh, everywhere that I've been inspecting, I've been asking people, oh, how was the wind this year? And it was just like two months or three months of tropical storm force winds, some days
2: Nuts! <laughs> Absolutely nuts! Uh, I was just talking with an 87-year-old here on uh, my side of the state, and he said, "Yeah, I've been around for a little while, and I don't ever remember the winds being this strong ever." Uh, so and, uh, that's yeah, and and how that um, makes farming, which you know a lot of us consider already a tough enterprise in the first place, a lot harder to do uh, navigating those. Of further
0: extremes here in the central part of the state we actually had a dust storm warning that came on us at the same time as a tornado warning and i watched that cloud of of soil move over us and that was uh something i'd never experienced before either and and uh would like to prefer not to see again you know so i'm always thinking about that as i see more people tearing up some of the tree rows around here and stuff but yeah uh Definitely stuff we want to focus on and, and part of why our Kansas Rural Center Food and Farm Conference this November is kind of focused on climate change and, and conservation and I guess more, maybe more on natural resources than than some years that we talk about things. So, yeah.
2: Well, uh, we're talking with Demetria Hill, De- Decatur County. Uh, they're in the northwest part of the state. Part of uh, uh, involved is their uh, fifth generation farm. Did I get that right, Demetria? You know, uh, a couple of questions, the quick questions that I have. One, uh, let's recognize uh, you're a woman in farming, which is, uh, you know, uh, you're already special in a sense that you're doing organic practices in Kansas, but what's it like to be a woman farmer in Kansas, and and what's it mean to you?
1: Um, I think it means that I I need more tools for... um, for not just um, physical tools to have more leverage. You know, I'm kind of a smaller person. Also, more access to land and just opportunity to farm the same types of fields or same interact with the same types of businesses that other people do. So, mm. I haven't personally run up against a brick wall because of my gender, but I do see that there is that barrier and there are little things here and there that I see my gender is stopping me from having the same interaction as someone who's who's a man
2: yeah I wondered if you uh you know you got you talk to people about what you do etc and and people feel surprised or not you know I, I wonder if you run into any of that
1: that's mostly what people uh, deal with when they talk to me. Oh, uh, it's just surprise. Whoa, I didn't realize someone <laughs> could, could do that. Oh, oh, you know what? Uh, I, like, I can look at a bolt head... And know what size of wrench to get. That surprises people sometimes. <laughs> Little things like that.
2: Sure, sure. Well, I wonder. I wanted to recognize that. And I think that's uh, uh, pretty amazing. So uh, um, keep up the good work there. And uh, I think you help inspire your peers, uh, not just because of, of who you are in gender, but the way you're doing things uh, on your farm. Anyway, uh, the other uh, thought I had was I wonder for you. You know, I think it's just hearing a little bit about your story, you're a multi-generational farm and you've provided the opportunity to enjoy the land and all that comes in with it. You talked about the meaning of the animals and improving the soil and, and making the business uh, make ends meat, et cetera. But I'm wondering, are you thinking generations from now in your operation or is it more about just what makes sense on your farm. I'm curious.
1: Yeah, I am definitely thinking about next generation and it may not be my kids, but, um, I want to be able to train someone else, teach them what I know that I got my education really on the farm here. I went to college, I got a degree, but, um, I I didn't go to college for anything to do with agriculture. Hmm. Um, so what I know about agriculture is from doing it here and from my dad's experience, my grandpa, his grandpa, Just there's little things that you learn from farming a piece of ground or farming in general through generations that should be passed down. And so I feel fortunate to have that education and I want to be able to share my experience with someone else anyone else who wants to take care of the land in the way that i know from generations of experience has worked or not
0: well i think uh that about wraps it up unless you have any closing thoughts demetria
1: um i think um you had a question uh about advice for for farmers oh sure who, who might want to get into changing their practices and it would be if you're interested in doing a certain type of practice, a lot of people do it on a small scale at first. They go to seminars, they listen to other farmers, they maybe find a mentor. You have to adapt it to your own situation. Being able to observe things and write things down and think critically about what worked and what didn't. I think you would get the most and learn the most for yourself rather than just I don't know getting a consultant um, Hmm. going to school you can go to school spend a bunch of money and not retain any information but if you're doing it yourself and you can think critically about what you're doing take notes I think that's that's a good method to to learn And if you have the the space where someone can let you do that, that's a challenge of my generation, I think, of not having the space to do the trial and error. I
0: think that's excellent advice. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you really yeah learn best by doing just being in part of the experience, right?
1: Yes. I think especially farmers. Farmers in general are, are all hands on and you can't just tell somebody, Oh, go do this and if you don't think about it you, you can do the task but you won't learn anything
2: well Ryan, i'd say that's pretty good advice and a good note to end on huh <laughs> thank you demetria yeah. for being with us and uh it was really uh um amazed impressed and uh yeah uh, i'm glad you were able to uh, share your wisdom with us
1: sure yeah.
0: thank you so much for your time and thanks to the audience for joining us for this episode This Kansas Rural Center Farm Bill podcast series is brought to you by generous funding from the National Healthy Soils Policy Network. To learn more about NHSPN, visit soilpolicynetwork.org. Thank you again to our co-host, Zach Pastora, communications coordinator, Charlotte French-Allen. And most of all, thank you to Demetria Hill for letting us interview you for this episode find out more about Kansas Rural Center and our work, visit kansasruralcenter.org. And please join us at our annual Food and Farm Conference in Salina, Kansas on November 11 and 12 of 2022. We hope to see you there. Like and share this episode with friends. And if there's something you'd like to see featured in our podcast feed in the future, please reach out to us at media at kansasruralcenter.org.